Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for coming uh, to Designing for a Neurodiverse World. Uh, we're so thrilled to have you. Uh, my name is Christina Couch. I'm the administrator of the MIT Communications Forum, which puts on events like this throughout uh, both fall and spring semesters. Uh, we're very, very excited to have this event today. And uh, in particular, we want to kick it right off by thanking our sponsors. Specifically, uh, Radius and MIT has been a great partner for many of our events, as well as uh, the Mind Hand Heart Innovation Fund. Uh, they are really the two entities that make events like this possible. So thank you so much uh, to them. So uh, we're very excited about our panelists today. Uh, I'm just going to go down and introduce everybody, and then um, we'll kick off the event. Uh, our moderator for this evening, first of all, is Dr. Rosalind Picard. Uh, Dr. Picard is the founder and director of the Affective Computing Research Group at MIT. She's also co-director of the Media Labs Advancing Wellbeing Initiative and faculty chair of MIT's Mind Hand Heart Initiative. Uh, she co-founded the technology companies Empatica Incorporated, uh, which creates wearable sensors and analytics to improve health, and Effectiva Incorporated, which delivers technologies to measure and communicate emotion. Uh, coming up next is Dr. Ed Sahan. Ned. Ned Sahin. Ned Sahin, who I am butchering his name, unfortunately. Uh, Dr. Sahin is a neuroscientist and CEO of BrainPower LLC, a company that makes wearable artificial intelligence systems to aid people with brain-related challenges. Uh, he is the, a founding member of the Empowered Brain Institute and a principal investigator for seven government contracts for wearable brain monitoring systems to assess and improve cognitive states. Uh, his academic work has been published in prestigious journals such as Science and Nature Neuroscience. And at BrainPower, he focuses on building augmented reality systems that teach skills for social interaction, language, behavior, and job skills. Uh, next on the list is Rafiq Abdupsabur. I'm pronouncing that. <laughs> Uh, he was president and CEO of the Empowered Brain Institute, which is a nonprofit disability advoca advocacy and support organization for individuals with autism and their families. Uh, Rafiq is also a board member for BrainPower LLC and founder of the education technology firm Edgewise Education. Uh, coming up next, we have Finn Gardner, is a disability advocate and policy analyst specializing in intersectional disability justice and access accessible technology. He's a research assistant at the Lurie Institute for Disability Policy at Brandeis University, where his work focuses on public policies for autistic individuals. Um, Mr. Gardner also works with the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network and speaks frequently about his own experiences with autism. Uh, Dr. Karthik Dinakar is coming up next. He's a computer scientist in the fields of machine learning, natural language processing, and human-computer interaction. He's also a founder of C3PO, or the Cambridge Computational Clinical Psychology Org, a group of interdisciplinary researchers focused on bringing together machine learning, casual interface, and clinical psychology. Uh, Dr. Dinakar received an Asperger's diagnosis when he was a graduate student at MIT. Uh, for this event, we also want to mention that we have live captioning available. So there is the website if anybody uh, would like those services. Once again, we'd like to thank Mind Hand Heart and Radius at MIT. If you have any interest in events like this, please uh, come after the event and sign up for our mailing list. Now there's a pen you can do that with. Uh, Thank you so much to our panelists once again. Uh, everybody's going to say a little bit about themselves, and then we'll kick off the moderated session. And thank you all for being here. Great. Uh, so we're going to start with each of us saying a little bit about what we're currently thinking about and working on. And actually, I'll, I'm going to start on the end with uh, Karthik. Yeah. Um, I'm a research scientist um, at the Media Lab, um, focusing on statistical machine learning, um, natural language processing, and human-computer interaction. 
I actually graduated from Ross's group um, just last year, so uh, I'm kind of new um, in what I do in my current avatar. I've been focusing recently on um, the use of machine learning in the criminal justice system, where people um, all across the US, many states are adopting um, these risk assessment algorithms to inform judges and various decisions that people take as folks move through the criminal justice system. I'm deeply very troubled by this. Um, and I don't think we should be substituting um, <coughs> placing our humanity in front of us when we deal with other human beings with uh, something that just spits out a risk score, um, especially doing things like predicting uh, how risky somebody might be in the future, as if they are metallic um, objects with a defined mass which can never change. Um, and I'm super excited to collaborate with a bunch of people at the Media Lab. So that's what I do. All right. I'm actually wearing several hats at the moment. Um, I am currently working on several public policy briefs and projects. Um, recently, I wrapped up a project about um, making like behavioral interventions that are actually empathic and actually have an effect on people with disabilities. Um, for example, autistic people or people with ADHD who may be experiencing who may be experiencing meltdowns or shutdowns. Um, I also worked on a policy brief about telehealth and how these technologies can be used for people with all kinds of disabilities and some of the intersections between accessibility and state law and policy and other factors like affordability and other related issues. Um, I'm also working on in my spare time, I'm also working, like, I also do a lot of research around um, inclusive technology and making it more accessible, making it more inclusive for people with disabilities or people in different countries. I believe very strongly in the idea that technology is something that should be available to everyone. I don't think that it is a good idea to sort of associate, to sort of have this idea in your head of the average technology user who is generally a white, cisgender American man without a disability. That's, you can't have this ideal user in mind. You have to understand that there are all kinds of users that will be interacting with your product. Um, and my research interests and um, my research interests, whether formal or informal, are informed by my own experiences as an autistic person. Um, I was diagnosed when I was very young, about three, and so I've always known about it. And I've always had this awareness of being different, of being excluded, of being sort of pushed to the margins for various reasons. You know, also, also I'm black, and I, so I've experienced racism and ableism and all of other, and all several other kinds of um, marginalization. So I'm acutely aware of how technology, how policy can either include or exclude people. And so my work in to, uh, my work in Toto is sort of devoted to dismantling this idea that policy or technology has to conform has to conform to this idea of the sort of platonic ideal of the ideal citizen or ideal user. 
I know they seem sort of like disparate disciplines, but for me, they're very integrated. So that's me. Good evening, everyone. You can respond, it's okay. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. So, um, my background is in education, um, and I bring that lens to the work of the Institute. We, when I think about um, designing for a neurodiverse world, um, two words, two ideas obviously stick out, and that's the design element and then neurodiverse, and I think uh, when I think about design, I think about experience. I think about what is, what is the experience of um, at the individual level and at the collective level, and, and how do those experiences interact? And I feel like for our work at the Institute, so the Institute came out of BrainPower um, to complement the work that, that BrainPower is doing. And so to the extent that BrainPower, which Ned will speak more about in a moment, focuses on empowering the individual to uh, have full access um, to technology and to the world and, 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 and essentially uh, realize their full potential. We, we focus more on the, um, the community or a collective experience and what, what we need to do, what we need to learn, and, and how we need to um, set up structures in society so that uh, we're doing our part, right? Um, and so that's the work that we focus on. We, we work with um, uh, Avery Normandin at the, uh, at the Media Lab, I think he's in the Sculpting Evolution group, to, to craft these environments that are truly neuro-inclusive. There's, a, a, there's a, a common notion in education um, called universal design for learning, and it, and it came from universal design, which is, which is uh, a concept in architecture. And the basic premise of it is, you know, if you're designing a, a doorway for a structure for a building, um, you want to think about all the ways people who will access that, that doorway, right? So, like, people obviously will walk through it, uh, people, you know, but what about people who are disabled, who don't have, able, you know, who don't have legs in a wheelchair, maybe they want to, maybe they want to ride a skateboard through it, and, and, and sort of, you know, embedding that in the design right from the beginning, as opposed to adding a ramp uh, later, right? Or, or um, um, and so, and you see a lot of examples of that in architecture. So it comes from that concept, um, but it, it essentially, it mainly um, is established to address physical handicaps, and it doesn't do as good of a job, in my opinion, of addressing um, neural atypical learning, right? So, um, so what we've tried to do is take, take those ideas um, take ideas from the clinical world, take ideas from the environmental world. There's, there's this movement around um, set, having a sensory-friendly experience, right? We, the more we learn about the language of autism and other uh, neuroatypical profiles, we, we, you know, the, you see places in society that are uh, taking steps to accommodate this, al this alternative uh, experience. Um, and so we, we sort of take the learning from all those places and, and, and try to create an, an experience that where, you, you, where everyone has a certain level of access to it, but you don't have to, when you enter it, you don't have to be identified as, oh, you have this issue, and so this is for you, and this is how you're going to engage, but it's embedded in your entire experience. Um, and that's been our challenge, and that's what we've uh, been working on. And 
I'm constantly reminded of how important it is to get it right. We, one of the things we also host are workshops for children who are neurotypical, typical. And um, we will get requests from families who, you know, for one family in particular that, that sticks out of my mind, there was, a, there was a woman who was bringing her daughter who was on the spectrum. And she said, you know, we're really excited about this opportunity. We really, we really see um, workshops like this, initiatives like this, that, that, um, that really want to include us and, and are catered to our unique needs. Um, but my daughter uh, doesn't agree with her diagnosis. And if there's anything about this experience that labels her or, or uh, directs attention to her uh, difference, she'll, she'll be horrified, right? And so, and, and so that's our challenge, right? So, and, 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 I, and I think if you can get it right, if you can create a, a truly neuroinclusive environment, there won't be any need to, to label one child as this way. You know, it, it's sort of embedded in the experience. Everybody gets this individualized, personal experience where you meet them where they are, and, that, and, you, and you sort of engage that zone of proximal development, which is a term from education, which, and, 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 and they can, which accelerates their capacity to learn. I think that's what we think about. That's what we're trying to perfect. Um, we hope that we'll be able to distill what we learn from these experiments uh, in, in, in language that is useful for engineers um, and policymakers and anyone who's interested in creating truly neuroinclusive environments. So. My passion and my company's mission is to empower people with invisible brain differences and brain challenges. And we do that at, at BrainPower, the name of the company, um, at many levels and meta levels. So for instance, we hire a lot of people on the autism spectrum and people with other diagnoses and maybe undiagnosed differences. We make a product that targets the autism community and another product that targets the um, uh, people with brain injuries and some adjacent conditions. And we run internships for people who have a passion to helping the community, have a sibling uh, in the community, are, and therefore are a member of the community, and or are on, on one spectrum or another. And we model and live with all day, every day, these real challenges. This is not something that's in a spherical chamber, in a vacuum, in a lab. This is regular daily life for us as a team and for the people we're serving. Uh, so backing up my background, my PhD, well, my master's was from MIT. And then uh, my father um, was an MIT man through and through. And so I had to ask his permission to go get my PhD at Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> Safety school. And, uh, and then postdoc out in California, which was not Boston. That was the main requirement for my postdoc. So I went to the Salk Institute. Um, but all of that academic work and, yeah, papers in, in good journals, I still had this need uh, to, what I say now is to make tools for Tuesday. What are we going to do to meet the actual needs in a messy reality of family life and school life? And so we make practical tools and wanted to make them high tech and nerdy and uh, based on the newest in neuroscience. And just a quick thing so you know some of the, the challenges involved. So with the wearable computer, 
I, wearing our software, can first of all find where faces are and get called to their attention because they turn into cool cartoons. And when I look at the cartoons, I start figuring out what the facial emotions are, thanks to thanks to Ross Picard's software. And um, if I decipher it correctly, I get points. It's gamified, compete, and. By the way, if I'm starting to get stressed, we have a stress measuring algorithm and start rocking, it'll pick that up and give me my favorite music, which can auto-adapt and so forth. So it's a multi-wearable environment, multi-purpose, and um, but not to be stapled to the person's head. This is something that you can do as a practice, 10 minutes, 20 minutes a day, and then you might think, well, you know, can people with autism wear a thing on their head? Uh, well. 200 say they can, because we've been testing this, and uh, our seven published papers say they can. Would they work in school? Yeah, published papers. Would, that, uh, would they break it? It's not easy to break, um, <laughs> and so forth. So we've been testing out the hypotheses, which comes down to a key thing. We've immersed ourselves in the community. When I say the community, what's the community? Because who are the stakeholders? Is it people with autism? Well, that's just part. Parents have one set of needs. Teachers have another set of needs. Their bosses, the principal of the school, has a very different set of needs. Government agencies have different sets of pressures. I'll go on more later. don't want to keep going too far here. But um, main point is that all day, every day, immersed in life with uh, differently abled minds. And it's fascinating, exciting, challenging for everyone, and a really rich environment, out of which it's quite probable products will come that were surprising based on what we first would have thought of and likely to be compatible with more sets of minds and brains <coughs> because we live it every day. I'm inspired. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say just a little bit about what I do and then most of the time I'm gonna get you guys talking and then we're gonna bring the whole audience in in a little while too. I love working with different kinds of minds. I'm currently teaching the, a course I started at MIT years ago on autism theory and technology, but we wonder if the word autism should not even be in the title, if it should just be about helping different kinds of minds to succeed. But every really cool thing my students and my research has uh, become focused on recently really has sprung out of working with people on the autism spectrum. We started with trying to understand emotion uh, to build computers that were more emotionally intelligent and started adapting that to help people understand emotion better. Uh, while trying to measure stress better, we accidentally discovered that we were picking up seizures, uh, lo and behold. So I learned about epilepsy and a whole bunch of other neurological differences in our brains. And through that, uh, started commercializing wearables that could go out to uh, not only monitor stress, but also help detect seizures. In fact, um, our first one from the Media Lab, I have to brag for a moment, just became FDA certified uh, in the past few weeks. So Crazy things that your students build um, that accidentally discover stuff can actually wind up becoming um, medically useful. Now we're back to uh, emotion. You mentioned some of the software our team has built, um, commercialized through Affectiva. Uh, but at the Media Lab, we're really focused on understanding how emotion and its measurement, its communication, can enrich lives, all lives, and help us all flourish better. Uh, and I was thinking, Finn, as I was listening to you, um, 
there's so much talk about identity. I'm really fascinated by this these days. You know, identifying, you know, I'm identifying up here with being quite different because I'm not wearing the dark blue jacket and the dark shirt, but also because I'm female, right? <laughs> Uh, but I've never felt like I fit in to whatever the female um, role was as somebody who was attracted to engineering. Because when I went to school, they said I needed to make sure I took typing because I could become a secretary if I ever chose to work or a teacher. Uh, they never really indicated I could be an inventor of cool technology. So I never really fit with what the expectations were with identities. So I've always kind of resisted those. But with emotions, as we get into... Um, the diversity of uses. I'm a completely different person when I'm using this and I'm stressed out or when I'm tired <laughs> or when I'm really focused. Um, and I'm not sure I'm a completely different person when I'm white or black mm -hmm. using it. So while that is important for some things, when it comes to um, designing technology, I think we need to think not just about all of these identity things, but also all the different things a single person can be when they're, when they're using it as well. Um, so I'll bring that perspective in, too. Uh, so today's isn't just about all those labels, although those are important, but also all the ways we can be diverse um, within one person. I fully agree. Um, I, though I talked about separate um, identities, I do have a very strong individual identity. I identify with my own accomplishments. I identify with my own ideas. I identify with my own um, opinions, my politics, my philosophy my creativity, my intelligence, these other internal factors that are, while they're not com completely separate from these externalized identities that I have, um, they are you know, vastly important. Um, with regard to how people, um, how this relates to technology or how this relates to how people move through the world, um, when I was growing up, I was um, often underestimated um, because I was diagnosed very early. Um, I had a doctor tell my parents that I would apparently never learn. So that was, that was clearly not true. Everyone can learn. And there is this idea that if you are on the spectrum, you can't have emotions. You can't interact with the world. You can't learn. You can't pick things up. And I mean, of course, that's patently untrue. And I also think that technology can be used to sort of facilitate um, interacting with the world and adapting one's experiences. I also think that technology shouldn't be used to fix people, but help them navigate through the world that isn't necessarily created for them. Mm -hmm. um, for example, in my case, um, I found that for one of the things that I struggled with was being able to reach out and um, make friendships that worked for me, that matched my interests, that matched my, um, sort of matched my personality, that sort of matched the way that I perceived the world and the people in it. And honestly, one of the things that helped me was actually going online. And I actually found that interacting with people through text was an easier way of picking up on social cues. And I think that may also apply in the educational sphere or other places where um, autistic people or other people who tend to interact more easily with text can have kind, um, social interactions and other, um, and other difficulties interpreted through text, through explanatory things, sort of like tooltips that pop up. For example, you can do social training that uses textual explanations. 
or for example, like glasses, you could have something pop up that says happy or sad or depressed or angry. Sort of this concurrent, this sort of sort of concurrent processing that allows you to understand and interpret the world as you move through it. And I also think that one of the things that I personally find really exciting and sort of revelatory is the um, expanded use of assistive technology to, for communication, like um, aug assistive, uh, AAC, yeah, assistive and augmentative communication, like um, Proloquo to Go on the iPad and similar apps on Android, although I think, I believe most of them are on iOS. Um, because before, a lot of non-speaking autistic people were um, constantly underestimated. They were treated as though they were unintelligent, that they couldn't communicate, that they couldn't interact with the world. Um, I was personally a late talker and I feel as though I would have, I would not have been interpreted as in, um, intellectually disabled if I did not, I mean, if I had had the technology that's currently available now. Unfortunately, I was two years old in 1988, so that was a you know, figment of people's imaginations back then. <laughs> so I think that just sort of leveraging the things that technology can do can help raise expectations of people with disabilities. Because I think that underestimation is just toxic. I think that it is one of the most deleterious things that you can go through as a person with a disability. Agreed. Um, I'd love to uh, hear each of you say a little bit more about either, and you can kind of pick your diverse question here, the um, neurodiversity thing you're most excited about in design, or uh, what is not, uh, not neurotypical? This is a question from the communication forum. What is not neurotypical? So pick, pick one of those two. We'll allow a little freedom here, and I'll go with whoever Finn just spoke. So I don't know, Ned, Karthik? Go for it. OK. Yeah? OK. OK, we'll go Ned and then Karthik. We joke a little bit around the company because we're, we're unclear if anyone in the company is neurotypical. <laughs> and of course, it, it raises the question, I mean, it's a little bit trite to say, hey, we're all on the spectrum, we're all not neurotypical. That's, that's neat and that's, that's important as a perspective to understand that there are many spectra and we fall wherever we do in a Gaussian or non-Gaussian distribution. Um, it's also good to understand that like in a Gaussian distribution, many people fall into a fairly narrow space where they're predictable. That is a real thing. Uh, it's, again, it makes you feel good to say, hey, we're all on, on this big spectrum. But in fact, uh, ignoring that would be a problem because uh, there's a lot of blindness that comes with this of, uh, you know, interesting term to use, sorry, but uh, in terms of who your customers are and what the customers are saying to you. Because if you say, well, we put out a, a product, it was good enough for many people. Many people are saying this is fine. Um, well, many describes that central tendency of a distribution. So you may not get the feedback and you may be unable to bring it back in if you don't understand that in fact many people do fall into a heteronormative cisgender blah 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 and if you just cater to them you may not notice you're missing say 20%, and hey, 80% is good enough, fine. But that's 20%, that's one out of five that you're missing. So it's important to understand that there are um, people at, at edges of a distribution, but then they're all over those edges of distribution. So there isn't a stereotype to people who are not stereotypical. And so it's harder 
reach them. It's harder to meet them. It's particularly harder to sit in a room of, say, four white-haired men and pontificate about what it's like to meet them uh, and meet their needs. So it's not just for titular purposes or to look good on, you know, on Facebook that you have a diverse team. It is absolutely necessary. On top of that, um, the world is now interconnected and ratings come to you uh, from all parts and people who are most offended will be most vocal. So that 20%, even if it's 2%, will now give a different kind of feedback and it'll hit you when it's probably too late. All the best to bake it in from the beginning. So I somewhat answered a different question than you asked because I don't know what is non-neurotypical. It depends on the domain. It depends on time. People change over time. Uh, if some of the non-neurotypicality is a developmental difference, I will get there, but I will get there slower than the large central tendency of the cohort, then my neurodivergence will change over time. At some point, I might, uh, from external purposes, catch up. Oh, and then everything's fine, right? But no, I don't have the same shared experience as others in that group. And so I won't connect with and identify with the product, the service, the philosophy, the messaging. There's more, but there's more panelists. <laughs> Go Karthik and then um, Rafiq. Um, I actually don't know what it means to be neurotypical. Um, it's kind of like a machine learning problem where you ask what the objective function and whose setting that is, and that kind of is decided by a community of people. and. Everybody basically just follows what's the top. Um, I will say though that uh, when I hear things about getting a label or getting a diagnosis, um, it seems to me just by personal experience that what matters the most is um, the first principle of um, what is it that we truly value. For instance, um, when I took the autism class, the first time Ross taught it in class, um, I was just reading all these things and just going, wait a minute, every single thing I, um, because I was always social, but with crazy sensory processing issues and a whole lot of like GI issues and nobody could really explain what was going on. And um, it was kind of liberating for me to get the uh, eventual diagnosis. Um, I didn't see it as a label. And I think a large part of why that was so empowering for me is I was in a community of people where neurodiversity is actually celebrated. So I think that actually placing a value on that is probably more important than, um, it's not about getting a label or not a label, it's how it's being um, accepted or perceived. Um, and uh, I've, I've met many people at MIT who are very social, but in small doses sometimes. And uh, they just have very similar sensory issues. And it's very difficult, I think, just to describe anybody as um, this is what we think is neurotypical and this is what is not neurotypical. Um, I think just accepting everybody is probably, uh, the more we focus on first principles, the uh, better we can be, because it doesn't matter. Can I inject a short story on that before we come to you, Rafiq? I'm reminded of, I would have all my students over to my house regularly, and 
One year, one of the one of my brightest students, who when we all put you know the person you'd most like to have lunch with, he put I don't like people. <laughs> on the web. Um, he came to my house. My kids were jumping all over him, and he says, "I want you to know, this is my one social event of the year." <laughs> I said, "Well, I hope it's a good one." <laughs> you know, he looked like he was having fun. Um, but at MIT, we well, the more different you are, the more you fit in. Um, it's sort of the opposite of Harvard, I hear. I, <laughs> we'll we'll try to maintain those uh, good differences. Crosstown um, rivalry. Yeah, yeah. Um, Rafik. Yeah. So I'd like to answer the question about what what I'm excited about. I think it relates to what um, the previous panelists mentioned, and I think I think we're we're an exciting we're at an exciting point in the sort of the history and, and ev continued evolution and human society in terms of um, the way we uh, deal with difference. I think we're at a, an important place. Uh, there, you know, we have a long history. It, you know, with we, if you think about um, women's suffrage to the civil rights movement, where groups who were different were essentially um, the gay rights movement, groups who were who were dif different, and, and just by virtue of their difference, were were persecuted, were oppressed, were uh, ostracized from society, and um, kept out of opportunities in in a, in a myriad of ways. And I think. Um, I'm excited about the time we are living in now because I think for a, for a long time in the society, it was a foregone conclusion that someone who had autism or someone who was neuroatypical, that they were less intelligent, that they didn't really have anything to contribute to society. I mean, up until the late 1940s, if you had any type of cognitive difference, you were, you were placed in a state institution so they close the doors, and for, and you for, you've forgotten about families. You know, signed away their family members um, because we're like, well, they, they're different. We don't we don't know. You know, like you take them, and and when you and there there's um, there are videos, and some of you may know uh, Geraldo Rivera. I mean, he's he's kind of infamous now, but he actually got uh, came to fame through exposing one of the, the largest school in the country that, that did this. And, and when he, and, and basically going in dur during an unscheduled visit and, and, and shining a light on all the, the horrendous practices that were, were happening there. And I think, uh, and when he would talk to some of the uh, physicians and, and, and staff, they would say, we, we don't even know what these People are capable of. We've never tried. We've never asked. We've never tried. We, we've never tried to teach them anything. We don't know, and uh, and I won't. I won't speak about their deplorable conditions because it, it upsets me. And uh, and I, but I think if you're interested, you should you should um, you should do a Google search for Willowbrook and Geraldo Rivera, and you'll and you'll see that video. But uh, those days are long gone. We've we've uh, we recognize that. Um, that they have a, that people who are neurotypical have a have a unique contribution, um, and I feel like you know we're they, we're not at the point yet where neurodiversity or the movement for neurodiversity is seen um, alongside the other movements I mentioned, but it but it is a civil rights issue, um, and I but I think we're close, and I think um, and that makes that makes me hopeful and excited, and 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 
obviously it's, it's important to me. I have a personal stake in it, um, but I'm also, be, because of my own personal experience as a minority, it means that much more to me that um, I'm, a, I'm a part of this fight. Um, and so, so yeah, that's what makes me excited. Yeah. Ben? What does it mean to be not neurotypical? I think that's a very complicated question, as um, several other people have said on the panel. Um, I think that there are a lot of different ways that people can be non-neurotypical. Um, I do think that there are people, as Ned said earlier, that do kind of tend toward the um, central tendency, but there are a lot of people in the tails of the uh, Gaussian distribution. For example, the uh, most notorious thing that is Gaussian, like has in a Gaussian distribution is intellectual ability, like somebody with an intellectual disability is neurodivergent. But people on the right side of the tail are also neurodivergent. For example, if you are, um, if you are so intellectually advanced that the standard school curriculum doesn't fit you, then yes, you are neurodivergent. You may not fit in with your classmates. You may not, like you're in school, you're bored. You hear them repeating things for 10 times, like review time, you're like, no. See, that's an example of neurodivergence. Of course, autism, and then even autism, the meaning of autism, it's very, it's multivalent. It's not, there's not just one autism, there's several flavors of autism. And for example, like some people may fit a more Asperger type. Some people may, like some people, some autistic people may have an intellectual disability. Some people may not have an intellectual disability. Some people may struggle more with social skills. Some people may struggle more with um, sensory stuff or executive functioning. In my case, um, I find executive functioning difficulties, that is planning, organizing, et cetera, more difficult than social problems these days. Um, my sensory issues, while they've receded in the past, I still find them more disabling than my um, social issues. So yes, um, even autism, which is sort of seen as this monolithic thing, autism. For example, you see PSAs and like, Aut does your child have autism? Or the uh, May Institute ads that are on the, uh, the T. Like, does your child, does someone you love have autism? They tend to treat autism as the sort of monolithic thing, and it's not. The same goes with ADHD. You know, you could be primarily, primarily inattentive. You could be primarily um, hyperactive. You can be a mix of the two. Or you can have Alzheimer's. You can have some, some brain injury, some sort of cognitive disability. There are so many different ways to be neurodivergent. Also, mental um, psychiatric disabilities, bipolar, um, yeah, bipolar or schizophrenia or borderline personality disorder. There are so many different ways that you can be non-neurotypical. And of course, you're dealing with all different kinds of access needs because there is not one single, singular neurodivergent profile. A lot of people say, those weirdos over there, but that's not how it is. In order to understand how we can make technology more inclusive, we have to understand how multi-textured, how multi-layered the idea of neurodivergence is, even within a specific diagnosis. You can't just say, hey, you're autistic, you have these needs. You have ADHD, you have these needs. You have an intellectual disability, you have these needs. For example, something that, I mean, I do agree that there is, such an, there is such a thing as universal design, and I think that there are ways to accomplish universal design while taking, in, taking into account all these differences. But in order, but you also have to be, sometimes it's important to have multiple settings to accommodate different kinds of needs. 
for example, my needs are different from somebody who has dementia or an intellectual disability. Um, I don't necessarily need language simplified in the same way that somebody with an ID would. Um, but there are sometimes ways that um, something designed for one population can work for others. For example, there was, this is incredibly arcane, but I think that in this room it's probably not a problem. There was this font designed by a company um, called FSME. It was designed for this British, um, British nonprofit that works with people with intellectual disabilities. And it was designed for adults with intellectual disabilities to be easier to read. But because of the shapes of the letters, because of the way things are formed, it, dis it disambiguates shapes like the capital I and the L and the lowercase a. It's also used for, useful for people with dyslexia. And then I don't even have either of those disabilities, and I find it more readable. So that's an example of how universal design can take into account all these very different kinds of neurodivergence and make things accessible. You just beautifully answered the next question I was going <laughs> to ask, too. Thank you. You're, you're like the innovator for where, where we're going here. Um, I wanted to ask all of you, for, for examples like that, where does uh, you know, designing for you know, not the majority actually wind up being something that perhaps a lot more people than you designed for really appreciate. And the font is a beautiful example. Others? Okay. Thank you. Well, so autism, luckily, is non-fatal. So you have children with autism, which is what a lot of people think of. But then there are adults with autism as are joining us. But one of the issues is employment. And employment is probably the single most protective thing against uh, mental health negative outcomes. Not any pill or any therapy, but having a job. And people with autism have about a 50% unemployment rate. People with autism and a college degree have an 80% unemployment rate. It gets worse. Competing for different jobs, uh, they're well-trained for something, but there are certain things that keep that raw brain power locked in, uh, such as it's hard to pass an interview because of the social issues sometimes. It's really significant if 80% of what amounts to 1% or 2% of your entire population uh, ends up unemployed. So we took on this challenge very carefully and developed a jobs training program and a remote digital job coaching platform. And we received a federal grant for this. So we have a, a congressional, direct congressional grant for digital job training. And what we realized, we went around, okay, what's important for someone with autism to help get a job? Making eye contact with the interviewer. What else is important? Trying to determine, are you talking too much? Are you not talking enough? Okay, how to determine the appropriate language and level of language and whether to use a, a swear word or so forth in certain contexts. Okay, um, how to operate around that proverbial water cooler. All right, so which of these things is restricted only to autism and not applicable to anyone else? Yeah, right, nothing. Right, so we ended up generating essentially a interview training program useful for all, useful for many. And we just got back yesterday, we did a, a trip to a college 
that wants to adopt our program, not only a technology for people with a diagnosis, but for people generally um, seeking, you know, for college and career readiness. So this idea then somewhat saying the opposite of what I said earlier, that um, you know, if you take this seriously that we are all on the spectrum, well, the, the flip side of that is tools well-tuned for people who sometimes have the tougher version of the regular human challenge of interacting with others. If you can get it there, if you can nail it in a, co in a really, really complex situation, it may be broadly applicable to all, and that was an example. Yeah. And I, can I just uh, yes. add to that? I think, in, uh, so, and the other side of that, obviously, is that um, when, in, when in business decides not to hire someone because they're not presenting neurotypical characteristics, it's a form of discrimination, right? And so what we do at the Institute is we host workshops for, for businesses, for entrepreneurs, um, and we say, look, this is the language of autism. This is, this, these, you know, if someone is not making eye contact with you and you, and you think that that's justification that, that speaks to their inability to, to be a good employee or to, to uh, possess some skill set that you think is valuable, we're here to tell you that you're wrong, we're here to educate you so that you don't continue to discriminate people against people who could potentially contribute and, and help your company grow and, and contribute to the creativity of design and, and um, decision making and, 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 all, and every aspect of the work that they're doing. And so, um, so we, you know, we think about that same issue and we, we come up with ways to train the, you know, come up with tools for the, that the public, the general public can use to, uh, to empower them to, uh, you know, to sort of be a, the best version of themselves and to be the, you know, which is an inclusive environment, inclusive, supportive, nurturing environment for everyone in the same way that it is for neurotypical people. So um, uh, I'll just give some personal examples of stuff I learned in the class, which I started to follow, but I started deploying it on quote unquote neurotypical people. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I found very useful is um, uh, heavy blankets. I don't know how many people here. I really sleep very soundly when I put a heavy blanket. The deep touch pressure really helped me. And I got myself a rocking chair because I felt like going back and forth really calm me. And um, whenever um, some friends of mine who get really stressed, um, I just used to get up and kind of just get them to sit on the chair without actually telling them to sit in the chair. <laughs> of course, like when you sit on a rocking chair, you start rocking. And almost immediately you can see that they can start thinking a lot better. So, which kind of tells me um, some of the things that we've historically seen as a disability of just, or oh, they pace a lot or they do some of these, they have some of these special needs can actually be beneficial for a whole group of people, just with different extent. And um, I was talking recently to a neurogastroenterologist uh, at MGH, who was um, giving a talk here. And he said something like, um, uh, for the vast majority of people who come into his practice with something like irritable bowel syndrome, which nobody likes to talk about, he said in medicine, 
um, because, quote unquote, only the uh, people that are not neurotypical exhibit these kinds of things. And he said the vast majority of them are women and people on the autism spectrum. And um, he said that his practice has evolved so much right now where they actually don't think that a lot of um, the problems people face is because of either increased acid production or inflammation in the gut. It's something to do with highly sensitive nerve endings that kind of mediate a strong response from people. And uh, he said that as soon as he realized that, he decided he cannot practice only gastroenterology. He needs to investigate neuro um, gastroenterology, and um, it's helped a lot of his other patients who are not um, on the autism spectrum as well. Bringing up a point we, we could have mentioned, we, we have diverse uh, neuronal systems in our body, too. Everybody keeps talking about the brain and brain power, but we have 100 million neurons in your gut that exhibit rim-like behavior when you sleep, and they learn and do all kinds of cool things, too. So we, we have a second brain, as Michael Gershon has written about, and others that uh, also runs our bodies, as anybody who has teenage sons like me um, <laughs> you know, can, <laughs> can agree to as well. Our stomachs, I know we're getting near dinner time too, dangerous topic. Um, <laughs> and any further comments on, yep. <laughs> I was just thinking of two different things. Number one, the um, thing that you mentioned about gas, um, GI issues um, reminded me of two studies that I read. One was the intense world um, interpretation of autism. I remember coming across a few years ago, and there's another one like hyper bodies, hyper minds, where people who are, you know, um, who tend to be on the um, far right side of the um, intellectual distribution tend to have stronger reactions to different um, environmental factors. And I remember, I think GI issues and allergies were one of the things I came across. So sometimes people who experience the world more intensely may also have physical responses that are also more intense based on these studies that I was looking at fairly recently. Also, um, regarding sort of this universal design theme that we were discussing, I was also thinking about how closed captioning and subtitles are not only beneficial for people who are hard of hearing or deaf, they're also helpful for the um, general population at large. I um, remember hearing about this, there was a study, yes, um, I remember hearing about this um, at a conference that I was at. Um, it was the, um, yeah, it was a conference that the um, Institute for Comedian Inclusion was, was putting on a couple of years ago. And um, one of the researchers there was talking about universal design. And he had mentioned that uh, people, of, people, whether they're deaf or hard of hearing or not, were able to benefit from seeing subtitles on movies. Like, for example, you know, I know people who aren't who aren't deaf or hard of hearing that benefit from subtitling. And also, there are folks like autistic people and other people who may have auditory processing issues or attention span issues that benefit from having subtitles. I've started turning them on all the time. I love them. Yeah. Especially you know, like if you have, have any like if you're watching this with hearing, but I, Yeah, watch an old favorite movie and you'll pick up a lot of things you, you missed. All right, I want us to give the audience time to ask questions. And there are microphones on both aisles. So please uh, feel free to grab a mic and anything goes here. There's another dimension, which is the temporal one. Uh, assuming you have that um, fictional neurotypical individual, they will navigate through time. 
and the mind will change. And so a lot of, I'm dealing with an 86-year-old mother who's had a stroke, but watching her try to use technology, um, like little things like a carrot, it means she should touch the pointy part, but she thinks of it kind of like a bracket, so she touches the other side. Mm. And so th there are a whole lot of things, or it's some designer who says, this looks cool. And all meaning has been stripped from the interface. You have to learn the arbitrary symbols. And to be blunt, somebody who's 86, it's not likely to rapidly adapt to you know, rapidly evolving um, user interfaces based on the whims of some designer. So there's a whole other dimension to this, which is just as we navigate through time, our minds will change. I mean, Maybe when I see your glasses, I just want the camera that tells me who am I looking who at, talks to your name, mm. um, and I, Lord knows what percentage of the population would be desperate. I hear chuckles around. Me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Two hands, everybody. We're all looking for. So all of us probably have something, but I, I think a real important aspect of this is you no know, change over time within the population, and that's a really <laughs> important thing for us to think about. Because you know, at one point when I was here as an undergrad, you know, I had my first HP 35 calculator, and that was the state of the art of digital technology. And I used to be the go-to guy. Now that I'm in my 60s, hmm. now it's like, wait, what is Snapchat, and why are you doing it? <laughs> it's, it's watching these waves of change have a real impact in terms of how we inter interact with this stuff. Because people keep arbitrarily changing interfaces for what seems to be nothing more than a commercial advantage, I'll screw you up and give you something else and force you to learn it. So, I'd love to, if you can, maybe we can share that. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Some changes over time reveal what was already always there. So that gets harder over time. So you've got to focus down on the core neural resources and apply on that. And they can teach us what we should have done all along to make something intuitive and simple, which sounds very intuitive and very simple, it's which it's neither. <laughs> uh, there's a company that is not one that does lots of humanitarian stuff for the world that pretty much makes seven products uh, with near slave labor and has $100 billion in the bank and does nothing with it of great uh, use for the world. And that unnamed Apple company pretty much <laughs> just makes things extremely intuitive. They put clothing on other people's computers. And I'm not biased at all. And, but what's amazing is they got that $100 billion or whatever because they made it intuitive. It's really, really hard. It takes time to achieve simplicity. But it's so desperately important. There's more to it than it's just hard because you have to make it pixel perfect. Because what does intuitive mean? It means that it will make sense for me but we just agreed that there are seven billion me's out there. And what's intuitive in Abu Dhabi or Abidjan or you know, Akron, and what's intuitive for the 86-year-old, for the six-year-old, how could we possibly make it intuitive for everyone? One lucky thing about this great time where we live is new technology is coming along that makes that possible. This is meta-level technology. Uh, we just had a wonderful conference call with a, a different large tech company today. I uh, can't reveal, but they're about to bring out to market some amazing machine learning algorithms. These are the kinds that are iteratively machine learning, sort of machine learning to the next degree. And where they want our use case, because they want a really hard problem, um, where the 
software would not only learn about itself and get better at doing what it's going to do, but learn you and become better at being the companion to you, the cognitive prosthetic, the outsourced brain of the, the neural wiring that's been pared away since, since you were younger in that case. So it's an amazing thing where we need to fight always to achieve that simplicity and the intuitiveness for all minds, but also there's some technology that might give us a pass that can do its job to self-customize to people. You completely anticipated what I was going to say. <laughs> well done. I was. <laughs> but what she needs, needs is a version that realizes she's not, okay, this split interface might be good if she was 22, and figure out, well, let me try this interface. And realize, oh, her error rate just went the hell down. Um, my accelerometer isn't getting slammed against the table multiple times. Some subtle hints to the machine that will not be suffocating. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Frustrated mom. We, the first emotion that was not in the book that we detected was frustration. Yeah. I was. <laughs> Thank you. Um, my name is Meryl Alper. I'm a professor at Northeastern, so other side of the river. Um, and I'm an ethnographer who studies how kids on the autism spectrum use media and technology. Mm. So I have two questions. Uh, the first one is, you know, we're at MIT, kind of home of epicenter of technology, and wondering uh, your thoughts on the role of the social scientists, social sciences of uh, social scientists in kind of developing, you know, new technology. And then the second follow-up question, because I think of, you know, what can social scientists bring, is your thoughts on we're talking about technology and the autism spectrum, and where you think talk of the socioeconomic spectrum fits into that discussion as well. Okay, I, as the um, social scientist on the panel, I'll address those issues. My undergraduate degree is in sociology and then so public policy is basically social science. So I do think that sociological issues do come into play. I think that technology reflect, technology should or does reflect the culture to which people belong. Culture and society are embedded in technology. People often treat technology as a sort of deracinated um, entity that is not connected to the culture of the designers and the culture of the users, but that's patently untrue. Um, to give an example, um, it may sound a little trivial, but it's an example of how culture is reflected in technology. Um, for example, things like spell checkers. Even within one language, one spell checker won't work for every language. English, a spell checker made for the United States will not work in any other country because we can't spell. <laughs> but anyway, um, also things like facial recognition. Um, to use a more serious example, you need to be aware that the, um, the machine needs to be able to pick up people of different skin colors and recognize that they're seeing people. Um, there is actually this supposedly intelligent hand washing, um, um, this like hand dryer. I remember seeing it on Twitter a little while ago and the, um, there was a white person that um, rub their hands under it and it worked. But um, somebody I think was either black or Middle Eastern, South Asian, et cetera, came up and they tried it, it didn't work. So you have to be aware of things like race or gender. You can't assume that your users are of a certain gender. You can't assume that people belong to a certain social class. You can't, ass you can't assume that people belong to this default. As I said um, earlier, 
you have to be aware that culture and identity and experiences are related to technology. They're not these separate entities. Some people go like, here's social science and here's hard science. No, we're people and because we're people, both these things intersect. And often quantitative research often bears out the things that qualitative research does anyway. And there's also you know, mixed methods research, which I really like. Um, now regarding the issue of soci um, socioeconomic status, I find, of course, a lot of this technology that's used is expensive, like getting iPads that talk is expensive. Getting glasses that help you interpret the world is expensive. And I do think that it is absolutely imperative that policymakers are able to fund these services for people of all ages, not just children, can use these technologies in order to navigate the world more easily in a way that helps them to adapt. I think that, um, of course, charitable organizations could also do it, but I think that the government is, like the US government has far more money than you know, any number of nonprofits you know, as much as a nonprofit might want to donate. Also, I, um, also, you know, the government is more efficient. They have more resources to distribute these things. They, um, for example, these, these services could be theoretically covered on, as telehealth. Um, there are a lot of states that have clear, um, that have guidelines to tell for telehealth and, um, while some of them need to be reformed to cover services beyond remote visits or um, keeping data or um, other, um, the other technologies that are currently being included in a lot of states' um, telehealth statutes, I think that um, these tools, these adaptive tools, can be included as um, materials that can be covered by Medicaid, that, be, that can be covered by private insurance, that can be covered by vocational rehabilitation or other um, state organizations, like state-run organizations that interface directly with people with disabilities, their families, and the people who support them. Can I? Um, uh -huh. Yes, I, I, I think I, I feel very strongly about this, and I love MIT. This is a, a very homely community for me, but I think we have to be honest when we say that uh, Sometimes there is a rush to actually propose a technical solution for things without really understanding um, the ramifications of how they can be used. Um, very concrete example, uh, for instance, all the bunch of risk assessment algorithms that are coming out now, which is really like um, trying to evaluate a very vulnerable, um, socioeconomically disadvantaged, and historically marginalized and even criminalized audience um, uh, a group, it seems to me like um, several of the so-called like technical solutions people are using, let's use um, machine learning algorithms to see who's high risk, medium risk, or low risk. If it's low risk, let's just let them out. Let's stop being the most incarcerated country um, in the industrialized world. And a lot of times, um, people don't really realize the way in which it can exacerbate bias in the data, how actually something that was actually designed with very good intentions by the folks who created it can have really harmful effects on the marginalized communities. And I think the answer or a way or approach to think about that is um, uh, 
it's 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 sometimes very um, easy to basically just be from the machine learning community and say, um, well, the psych people are mostly doing soft stuff, and I'm doing probabilistic graphical models or whatever. And uh, for me, I think it was very uh, kind of a paradigm change where I stopped seeing social science research as um, any less rigorous than what I thought I was doing. And uh, we need better ways to kind of weave in qualitative methods and actually understand the populations we are working with before actually rushing into uh, design stuff. Interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary discussion is absolutely required in order to make this work, I believe, I agree. Agreed. That quickly uh -huh. on socioeconomics. Um, gentleman who just left there because he had another commitment was um, he's one of our clinical staff. We have a clinical staff because we run clinical trials. He's an MD psychiatrist, but he also had a grant for studying autism in disadvantaged communities, and so he's done some interesting <coughs> studies and published on that, and it's informed our work. Um, just very interesting. You see that there's certain communities, uh, whether the black community or even. So further on the fringe where it's like, wow, great, they have much less autism. Yeah, no. Not diagnosed, harder to get the appointment, less of a point because the services aren't there, and so on and so forth. Really some nuanced, interesting stuff. But we've, we've rolled that into what we do. Um, had the privilege of a four-hour dinner with Temple Grandin and got a lot of wonderful insights. So interesting that she can be in and talk about so perfectly. She's her own Rosetta Stone. But she gave some feedback that, like, this is great, but she prefers things made of cardboard because you know, it's expensive. And so when we recently crowdfunded to get the device out into the community, uh, we took this into account and created different methods for uh, payment plans and to try to get hardware through home computer-based services waivers and um, health savings accounts and so forth found ways to find other pockets of money to pay for the hard part, literally the hardware, and to give the software very, very, very uh, inexpensively. You have to think about what goes into the life cycle and the other pressures that are going on uh, in, in people's lives, and we've tried to model that and address it. Someday, of course, technology costs come down. That being said, you know, I feel a little bit of pang of guilt because we have to sell a, a piece of hardware that's, that's expensive along with it. But um, in the end, we're, much, we're mostly software. And software has the magical ability that you know, someone um, in Myanmar or in Maryland um, you know, or someone whose mother is ill can <coughs> instantly download something. And if it's correctly delivered and there is the platform, you can benefit you know, a billion people tomorrow. The software revision cycle can be so fast and can affect so many people. So there is that capability to leapfrog for people who are actually in the most disadvantaged situations to suddenly leapfrog um, the many next steps potentially of development because of that. Mm -hmm. I'm optimistic. <laughs> I also just wanted to answer or respond to that uh, quickly. I, I, coming from the world of education tech, um, I feel like there are a lot of great Technological tools that are create you know that are born into existence by engineers and like look look what I've created this is a great thing and um, now what are we going to use it for? Well, we can use it for this and oh maybe uh, teachers could use it to do some some aspect of their job that uh, <coughs> before was 
analog or manual, you know. They think about all the applications for this, this, this thing, this, thing, this piece of technology or this invention. And, um, and if, you, if you know anything about education <laughs> tech, there's this like huge wasteland of, of companies and products that have tried to uh, permeate or infiltrate the market and fail for one reason or another. If you ask me, someone who comes from education, I think it's the social science piece that they that they miss, and I think that and a lot of tech companies are are run by engineers and tech people, mathematicians, quantitative people. <coughs> when um, you know schools, I mean, they're, the industries that they they want to be profitable in or succeed in are not they're not you know, mathematical, they're more like multicellular organisms and it's messy and it's qualitative and, um, and there's background and there's context, you know, and if you, if you want to boil it down to these neat points, okay, this is our customer, this is, how, this is the pain point, this is what we're going to address, right, and, we're, and just roll it out to everyone, chances are you're going you're gonna to fail because you don't get the nuance. And, and I feel like that's where social science really comes into play and is really important when you understand understanding the customer, understanding the, the individual. Uh, Tip, Tip O'Neill, a famous Massachusetts politician, uh, had a saying, it was, uh, all politics are local. And I think, I think it's true of, of, of every aspect of our experience. It's all personal, right? And so you have to understand everything that goes into why the individual, who the individual, individual is, how they came to be that way, what motivates them, and, and that's, that, that's the, the, the environment in which they grow up, the family that raised them, the, experience, the educational experience, all these things, the, you know, the social science side, you know, the socioeconomics. And so I think it, it, it's important. It should play much, a much larger role in the conversations around how tech can be of use and, um, and of service to, um, pop, to populations that, that benefit from it, whether it's education or in other industries. Um, and so, uh, but I think that conversation doesn't happen as often as it should. Well, the next question's getting up there. I'll just um, remind of a quote from the late Marvin Minsky who would say, you don't really understand a problem until you've understood it many different <coughs> ways. Mm. And I've always uh, appreciated that as I try to bring in first few points on our work. Yeah. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Maeve O'Byrne. I'm actually an undergraduate student from UMass Boston. Uh, and my question actually comes from <coughs> something Finn mentioned earlier. You told us a story about how, when you were young, you had a physician tell you that you would never learn or something crazy like that, which breaks my heart because I'm an aspiring physician myself. And I feel like physicians should be an ally to those that are neurodiverse. I so what advice would you give to like patient care providers um, to be more neuro-inclusive, as you would say. I would say that, firstly, everyone can learn, whether they have an intellectual disability or not. Everybody has um, an innate intelligence. Everybody has the ability to understand the world <laughs> to at least some extent. Also, I would say that while you should understand that people have a disability and may have limitations, that doesn't necessarily mean that they can't grow. Um, sort of that whole growth mindset mentality as opposed to the fixed mindset. But, um, and understanding that um, your job is to support. You're, you're not supposed to bring down these pronouncements because, you know, as I said, like 
you know, this doctor thought that I would never learn, that I had an intellectual disability. And then a couple years later, they saw me doing other things, and then I got put it into, then I was labeled gifted like a couple years later. So, you know, it's like <laughs> they thought I was here, and then I turned out to be here. So you have to be, you can't just go, this is how you're gonna be forever. You can't think that way. And it's just, you cannot put, you cannot just like bring down these absolute pronouncements. You have to grow with the person. <laughs> You can't just like sort of assign them into a role and expect them to fit into that role for the rest of their lives. It's just not, it's not productive. It's demeaning, it's dehumanizing, it's demoralizing, it's destructive. And also it's just dead wrong. <laughs> so that's what I'd say. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Bill Fleming. I'm a business and marketing guy, and I work with the local design community. And uh, my best friend has a five-year-old who's nonverbal autistic, and she introduced me to the concept of neurodiversity. And unfortunately, she couldn't be here, but I'm happy to, and this is an amazing topic. One of the um, things that I'm aware of, given that part of this is a design symposium, is that a big part of success with design is prototyping, user research, iteration, and um, because we were talking about uh, one of your expressions was uh, people on the margins um, makes it difficult for user research just looking to get some feedback on your take on that whole aspect of it okay. clarify the question so it was how do you find the people who are going to give you the feedback uh, if they're the ones that are harder to find or not? Uh, it might be a two-part question one is how do you find that um, because the, the diversity within those margins is wide it could be <laughs> year old or the 86 year old and it could be all different factors um, with that. And then once you do get people, how do you actually go about testing given some of <laughs> feedback mechanisms that traditional designers would get are challenged because of um, different communication issues? For sure, I'll take it quickly. There, I mean, there are actually federal guidelines on what usability looks like and what uh, how to test to some degree, not perfect, but there are some starts and there are some great companies and, and others who've attempted so you can follow their lead. Um, but for sure, I think what you're hinting at there is it's hard to hear what literally people don't say if they're non-speaking autistics. And um, to hear the feedback, you also need to be able to incorporate. So I want to design a syllabus. I want to design a product. I want to design a communication, a blog post, and reach a lot of people. Um, how do I go through that iterative process and incorporate the feedback? You know, if it's going to come to a mind that wasn't expecting that answer, how do I really know what that answer meant? And again, <coughs> diverse team, respecting members of the team's opinions as equal to one's own. Iterate and test. You set science, right? You set a hypothesis, you set a threshold, and go out there and test it, and then respect the rubric. Don't say, okay, well, I think if 80% of people who come in with a diagnosis according to the ADOS can use it, then it's the thing, let's do it. And then they come in and it's only 70%, and you're like, yeah, but I think it'll be fine. No, have a rubric, respect it. Otherwise, you're iterating the rubric, which you also can do. But um, 
take it very, very seriously. People, I find, who are in a community, a marginalized community, a, a different community, are extremely, if, if approached correctly, extremely eager to help out. They want to help others. Um, parents of people with <coughs> different abilities are very eager to help other parents. You know, someone who's five years into the diagnosis sees someone who's one year into the diagnosis, I mean diagnosis of their children, and says, I know what, what you're going through here. You think there's a quick fix. There isn't. And the depression comes next year. But I can get you through that because I know what the light is like in the other end of the tunnel. And people really want to help if you listen to their voices. And I add something to that too. Those of you who do machine learning know you have a training set and it's almost never big enough, so you jitter the content a little bit to try to get more out of it. And similarly, when you don't have quite as many users coming in, or what tends to happen, I've seen like Microsoft years ago, it was very cool to get paid 50 bucks an hour and go in their modern facility and see the new coolest thing. And one of the new coolest things that got two thumbs up from everybody was this little animated paperclip. <laughs> and, and looked really happy to see you and, and looked really happy to give you advice. And if you're in a really great mood, I'm testing some cool new stuff and you're really happy, that's, that's a great experience. So no surprise it got two thumbs up under that circumstance, right? What happened later was it would pop up when people were frustrated and things aren't working and you know, you've got this major deadline and this little thing is walking into your office and smiling and, and looking happy and you're ready to shoot it, right? Because <laughs> um, they, they didn't jiggle the data, right? They sort of treated everybody in that state that they came in. So I think, again, we can get even greater diversity out of our test users <coughs> by having them take it home or test it in different circumstances or you got to be careful how you do this because you don't really want to upset people, but maybe put them in a situation that's a bit more stressful, uh, not just this happy, treat them well. I mean, you do want to treat people well, so it's delicate. Um, but I think together we come up with ways that simulate more of the real-life situation. Um, real-life use is the very best for testing. Let them take it home. And then they get past their friendly, oh, I like it, everything's good and then they start telling you what's really broken and miserable about this. Mm -hmm. Yep. So one of the things, um, there's a methodology from Stanford uh, uh, University, their D school, called design thinking. Um, uh -huh. and so some of you may be familiar with this, some are not. But um, a big part of that is, um, I'm a design thinker, uh, and a big part of that is asking why. So when you see the paperclip, it's not like, oh, that's cute. Well, why? Uh, what do you like about it? What, so to understand the why will mm -hmm. help inform what to do with it. So yeah. design yeah. thinking and some of the methodologies of that might be interesting to some people. Yep. Under what circumstances? <laughs> interesting story about the paperclip. Do you know where the paperclip ended up? Well, he's living in Oahu with his life partner, Jar Jar Banks. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone? No? Uh, okay. Bill, Bill Gates got a standing ovation when he said it was going away. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm Jill. I'm a grad student with the Integrated Design Management Program here. And uh, I was just, I'm, we're doing research right now for kids with special needs. And a lot of the stigma comes when, especially when they're in school. Um, I guess in your experience, especially on the education side, is there any way for us, I, how can we make schools more neurodiverse? Mm. In the sense, you know, are there any quick wins? Because not everybody can afford technology. Mm -hmm. um, not just 
besides technology, can, um, we're looking at the systems, are there certain products that are already implemented that actually do create significant impact? Um, I was thinking of something similar to um, what I said earlier about um, the medical profession. You, you have to understand that every student is an individual and that they all have the capability to grow. You don't want to come in with these assumptions that just because a student has a disability that they have a problem and that it's important to recognize that the standard curriculum may not necessarily be appropriate for the student in question because, you know, it might be too linear, it might not be linear enough. It might be too hard, it might be too easy, it might be too repetitive, it might not be repetitive enough. Um, there are all these different variables that, that, that are important to take into account. Now, I know that there are standards to which you have to adhere, given that there's the Common Core and various state standardized tests, the SAT, the eight, like, there are all these um, standardized tests, high stakes testing that you have to take into account. But there are ways in which um, you can still differentiate instruction, especially for students who qualify for services under the IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. So you just kind of have to build diversity and build inclusion from the ground up as opposed to going, oh, here are like, you know, the 80% of these students that match this central tendency. They're in like the, the hump of the bell curve and you've got these folks on the tails and we're just gonna like kind of staple on these accommodations afterwards. No, you have to build it in from the ground up and recognize that you're gonna have outliers. No matter what happens, there are always exceptions. And oh, basically, you have to apply exception handling to education. There's gonna be exceptions. And I'm not saying that students with disabilities are errors, but you have to handle these situations as they come up, as opposed to saying, you know what? If you don't fit into this, this, the, this hump of the curve, you don't matter, or you are an inconvenience, or you know, as a um, s certain government official said that students with disabilities were the single most irritating problem for teachers in the country. No, that's obviously not right. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I would also add, I think um, you're also referring to the phenomenon in schools where um, children are discriminatory towards other children, right? And that plays out. I mean, and, I, and I, as a former Boston Public School teacher, I, I taught students with, with special needs um, in, in Charlestown, and, um, and you, you recognize right away that they're hypersensitive to any kind of difference um, that they observe, and um, their response is usually negative. It's usually to shame the person or to make fun, you know, like, ah, look at this person there, you know. And uh, it could be the, the smallest thing. Like, I would, if I came to class with my hair down as opposed to being up in the bun, the, the class would like erupt. I'm like, oh my God, what? You know, hey, Miss, Mrs. A, or, you know, you know, like, they, they called me Miss, Mr. A because they couldn't pronounce my last name. But um, <laughs> it was, <laughs> but, you know, it was, it was something as subtle as that. I think, um, so one of the things we have to, so that told me as a teacher that, um, one, it's, you know, obviously it's part cultural, but it's, it's probably also um, natural, right, for us to notice these, notice differences in, in others, right? And, and maybe it comes from a, like, we have to determine very quickly whether or not this person is a threat, you know, and, and so, like, can, is, is it a friend or a foe? I need to know right away, right? But, um, so, but I think what we what, what teachers have to do, and I think schools are the best places to do it, is is uh, is to cultivate uh, 
a truly inclusive environment, right? And, and there's, there are models for what that looks like. And there, um, if you go to the Henderson School in Dorchester, you'll see full inclusion at its best. And the whole point of inclusion was so that um, students who were typical and atypical could see each other, learn from each other, normalize difference, um, and, and, celebra but, and, and celebrate it and accept it and embrace it. Um, but it's not enough just to have uh, children of different types and learning styles in the same room. You, the, the teacher has to be very skilled at um, facilitating inclusion, facilitating, celebrating. Like one of the things I was always intentional about doing is, uh, uh, is, is, is celebrating uh, ex all kinds of examples of success, you know, and making sure that everyone was celebrated um, for something that was unique about them. And so. Um, to, to combat the negative, the negative culture of shaming. And, and, but I think so that we need, to, we need to be more consistent about that across schools, but also culturally, because they learn it, they learn it from somewhere. Um, but I think teachers have to take, um, have to become more skilled and, and more assertive about cultivating um, a learning-oriented environment that is inclusive, that celebrates difference, um, and, then, and then grow from there. Mm -hmm. um, Karthik and then Karthik. Yeah, um, I, I, I completely agree with what was just said. I, would, I have a colleague who studies um, the uh, manifestation of chronic diseases um, after one crosses well into adulthood, like post 30, 40 years old. And some of the findings that are coming in right now is that when you are um, told that repeatedly that you're different and you basically have a very hard time in school, it turns out that the, the way that's physiologically processed by the body, the adverse impacts sometimes are not known until a very long time. And it's somehow the body just seems to keep a score of what happened. And some of the studies that are basically drawing parallels with you know, soldiers who come back from wars with PTSD, and they begin to associate um, memories of very um, crazy things that happened with them when a bomb exploded or a colleague died that is very triggering for them and sends their body into a tailspin. Um, uh, this researcher was saying over and over again when she was tracking these people all the way back to their childhood, adverse events during childhood and repeated social adverse events in school is extremely damaging and uh, something that I think everybody should just take very seriously because it tends to be very internalized and physiologically processed, I think. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. Did you have another on that, Dad? And then we'll go to, more yeah, okay, I go back to you. I have a, just a comment related to the current question. Um, is that a lot depends on how an accommodation is offered. My son has sensory needs, and when he was told, like, well, you have a particular need, so we can bring in a bumpy cushion for your chair or a strap so you can bang your feet on it, um, it helped, but he hated it because he was the only kid in the room who had a different chair. And then the next year, he went into a classroom where the teacher said, we have a lot of different chairs. Which one would you like to all the kids? And he had such a better year. So just starting from the place that 
we're a community where people need different chairs. <laughs> um, great example. Yeah, great example. We were pointing out our class filling out this uh, matrix of neurodiverse characteristics, and so many people with no labels shared exactly the same. I bet a lot of kids loved having those other options, right? So let's offer those things to everybody. It's great. Yes. Thank you. Um, my name is Ines. I'm a postdoc here at MIT, and my question goes to both Rafik and Ned, I suppose. Um, earlier today, we had the um, MIT Intelligence Quest uh, campaign starting, and um, Eric Schmidt was there. And he spoke about that the future of, I suppose, uh, everything is in, um, in the intersection of AI and healthcare. Now, I suppose somehow you fit into that category, so congratulations on that. Mm. Um, but he also mentioned um, that he feels that regulation is something that should come basically as late as possible. Um, therefore, my question to you would be, um, how and in which ways, really, do you cooperate with regulators in the specific um, industry that you're working with to ensure that the products you develop are actually for the benefit of the people who need them? Thank you. Important question, an important time where we are, the human brain is graduating. The human brain is now capable of making things that can have brain-like intelligence, and then can go back and help amplify, fix, augment the, the brains of the rest of us. It's, it's an amazing time. It can be used for ill, it can be used for good. So there are regulators who make sure that something is medically safe. There are not regulators necessarily at another level, um, although there are policy people, who will help us think about whether something is morally safe. And I think each is important. One good point of reassurance, many people worry about artificial intelligence taking us back over and, and giving us any of these movies that we've all created through time when there's a dystopian future. We've made those through time, and they were also Greek plays. Uh, we will be fine. We, we self-regulate. We will not probably create an intelligence that swallows us back up. But it's possible. The um, Singularity. <laughs> probably not, I said. <laughs> but regulators now, in, in the very, very clear sense, are extraordinarily important, partly because of some of the things we mentioned. These families are under tremendous stress. The members of the family who have the would-be label and the other members of the family. And there is a desperation index that you can plot. And it's extraordinary. Normally, a product will be of utility, as measured by whether people will procure it, uh, based on the certainty to which you believe that it will cause benefit uh, and some kind of cost. And that curve could be linear. Um, curve for parents of, of say, autism, is what I know, is, is extraordinary. It's if there's even more than zero chance that it might work, you're gonna try it within whatever means you have. And that hump to the curve is the desperation index. And I think it's very important to regulate to make sure people don't take advantage of those families. And to not take advantage um, and to market correctly and to have backing and uh, underpinnings to what you do is a large part of what, for instance, FDA does for regulation. It's not necessarily what we might think, a whole bunch of clinical studies, and it's just about what those, you know, is it 0.99 or 0.999? Um, it's also, do you have good manufacturing practices so each time you turn it out, it'll be identical? Um, do you report when people complain? And 
many other aspects. So regulation is very, very important. Um, that being said, the philosophy of regulation can be uh, self-policed by a community. And the, some regulations have slowed things down. So I think there's, there's this tension between what the person said earlier, and I was at the event, um, and where I think digital medicine needs to go. So we take on board good manufacturing practices that are the underpinnings of, of an FDA process. So cooperating with and taking the digital guidance. There was new digital guidance released as recently as my birthday, December 15th, so a few months ago, on what digital medicine can mean. And we're cooperating by virtue of following those guidelines. And so the whole world, the whole country, the, the regulatory bodies are learning what it means to create a product that can cause benefit, can be a therapeutic, and yet it isn't a drug or a surgery or a laser or something like that. It's a behavioral process instrument, um, modulated by uh, software. So this is that amazing time. The brain is circling back on itself and our behavior, which we always have known as an indication of um, whether someone is on one side or another of that curve, now that behavior can be used as, as medicine uh, to affect the change in the brain that's, that's needed. So, you want to also? No, yeah. I couldn't have said it any better. I think also sometimes um, there's a tendency to just make technology the villain, and certainly regulation is important, but it kind of makes me think about the Monopoly board game. The precursor to the Monopoly board game was actually uh, the creator wanted to alert people about the ravages of capitalism and the dangers of greedy landlords. But the way it was popularized is the rules and everything were the same. Just the, now it was your job to be the landlord. <laughs> and it, just by changing the first principle goal, um, uh, the whole dynamic of the game changed. Um, and so sometimes when we think of regulation, um, it's not machine learning's fault, it's basically it's not a human being. For example, the use of any technology, say for a vulnerable population. The question is, why aren't we using some of you know, the causal inference stuff that Ross works on right now? to actually find out, um, instead of just predicting who's high risk, low risk, or medium risk, why don't we actually understand if you take away a driving license from somebody who's just been arrested, and you expect them to come and have um, court hearings where failure to appear in court is another cross mark against your record, and that's what the algorithm's predicting, the causal route is something else. And Technology can actually be very powerful in identifying those problems. Um, several times, I think the fundamental question becomes, what is it that we actually value? And so uh, all the good things that can come from technology that can be prevented by um, increased regulation, I think the larger question is, what, is, what do we actually value? And can we actually get agreement there, uh, is what I would say. You're just making me think of an interesting case where, you know, if you saw 
like a lot of kids with behavior problems in school, they found if they fixed their sleep, half the attention and behavior problems went away, mm -hmm. right? So with a lot of the technology these days, you can see if a person's sleeping well or not. You might go back and say, maybe he wasn't just misbehaving behind the wheel of the car. Maybe he was, he's sleeping bad, and maybe he's sleeping bad because he's in some housing with really bad noise and bad conditions. And if we fix some of that, maybe some of these other problems would drop dramatically. So technology can help us get to the causal factors too. Chrissy. Hi, um, so we're talking about how we can design technology to help people with autism, um, but technology is not always the answer. And so I was wondering if you could touch on how technology or the use of it can also, in some sense, be like disabling or be a negative thing. Hmm. Challenging question. It is. Of course, there are, you know, anything like technology, like any other tool that we use, can be used either for good or for ill. Um, for example, if like some people, some autistic folks may get so sucked into using, let's say, a computer as a communication tool, they get so they get so stuck, they get so sucked into it that it's harder for them to focus on other things, or they get distracted by games on their phone. There are plenty of different reasons why there may be some issue that causes technology to be detrimental, or the autistic person in question just may not like using technological methods to solve their problems. I mean, some folks just, like, regardless of age, just don't necessarily feel that that's the solution for them. So I do think that, um, I don't think that technology or anything else is an unalloyed good. There are, there are detriments and, and positive. We, we take this extremely seriously, and so thank you for the question. And it somewhat goes back to Ines's question about regulatory, um, uh, so regulation, and it's all about risk analysis. So what are, the, what are the possible risks? So for instance, I have autism, I wear this, now everyone knows I have autism. So is that a risk? It comes back to identity and, and how challenging is that these days? But it's not just these days, it's these days, in one school we're working with in Plymouth, Another school in Lawrence. Lawrence is a very different community than Plymouth, if you don't know. Um, you know. Probably the stigma could be greater in Lawrence. So what is the stigma value of wearing this? And then it comes to how it's messaged, which I think was said from this part of the room. Um, so is this something like, hey, everyone, tomorrow, your friend and classmate is going to get something really cool. And I know you're all going to want to try it, but you can't until next week. And it's like, oh, it's the cool thing that's coming. He's getting this thing from Google versus, well, he kind of has these differences and we're going to help him, everyone be okay and be polite. So messaging really matters. But um, So we tested that. Will there be stigma? So we brought people in, the experts, children with autism who know what school is like and who know when things go catastrophically wrong in, in the social environment at school and asked, try this, would you wear this, et cetera. So that's the paper we published. Um, data on their perceptions, their parents' perceptions, and uh, later, another paper, we brought it to the school, asked the, the, child, the children with autism, as well as the classmates and the teacher and the para and the parent. How did it go? Was this better than you expected? What were the problems? What were the issues? And we captured that. And we just went to that school yesterday. Some of the teachers expressed, well, I don't know, would this out people? and um, could this be an issue? And by the way, you know, what's the deal with Google Glass? You know, are, what's the, this is actually the next version of Google Glass uh, that people don't necessarily know came out. Um, but you know, isn't that passe? What's the deal? Okay, so we went, talked to one of the students who was actually a programmer doing some VR, and 
hey, uh, have you tried glass? No, I never have. Would you like to? Yes! And he like throws down the thing that he was doing, come on over and, and uses it. So we assess these risks. But there are very real risks around, I mean, simple possible risks, you know, you could fall or something like that, but also these very important ones about social risks and technology. You can't assume it's always going to be good, and it absolutely won't be, and that comes back to the iterative design, unless you intentionally think about what are your riskiest assumptions and test them. Yeah. Always test. To, to add to that, I, um, one aspect of BrainPower software, it, you know, so it essentially gamifies social interaction. And um, one, of, one, one tension that uh, Ned and I have had is, as, a, as someone who grew up a gamer, I, you know, I'm like, oh, like, we should make um, your avatar, like, they should let people choose, and you could grow as you get as you get more skilled. They should get muscles, and they you could have get change the outfits. And he was like, "No, no, no, no. We don't want to make the game too good. That where they don't right. It's, it's not actually about the game. It's not actually about the the technology. It's about facilitating this human connection, right? This human interaction, right? I was like. Wait, what? We don't want to make the game good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> to go but, back you know, to those values. But I, but I think, to, you know, to the extent that I would have won that argument and and made this great game, I think it would have made, ultimately made the software and technology less effective because it would have been a deterrent to to genuine social interaction, which is what we actually want to encourage and, and, and train. So, mm -hmm. at the mic. Mm -hmm. My colleagues say I'm like vertically challenged, so I have to <laughs> angle this to my height. <laughs> uh, my name is Sati. I work at Boston Children's Museum. I do a lot of accessibility work and inclusion uh, work in the museum. Um, my question actually sort of half got answered by your comment about testing the product, so it might be this might end up being more like a piggyback comment um, rather than question. But I just had a thought about. Um, social emotional aspects um, of the technology or accommodation in general. So I worked with uh, this company that makes uh, robots for kids with autism and it has a lot of good functions, uh, but how they sort of like pitch their product, um, one of the ways that they did it was that because it's like so cool and it's like, you know, human, like a cute human like looking um, that like if this kid has it, like other kids got interested in like what the child has and then like it helps open up the conversation because oftentimes these kids have um, some issues maybe with like a social interaction sometimes. And that's sort of how they presented us like this is a cool thing that the child can have and that helps other kids be more interested in this child and then that can sort of help with the social interaction. And I hear sort of a similar comments uh, or similar arguments about like some like a service animals that sometimes kids with autism have or companion animals. And again, that sort of like helps open up the conversation. So that's like a really, so it's, you know, it can be presented as like a really positive thing, but um, how someone else, I'm sorry, I didn't catch your name, um, but how she was explaining about the bumpy chairs and how having something different can make you stand out in a wrong way is a sort of polar opposite <laughs> side of the issue. Like, I just don't know, like, what exactly makes the difference um, of, like, I have this, like, something, like, really cool and special and, like, people are interested in me because of this versus 
I feel stigmatized because I have this special product. As you can see, I have visual impairment, and I think a lot of times uh, what I hear, um, I mean, what I heard growing up, um, but I think I still hear it now, is that a lot of blind kids often, especially if they are mainstreamed, um, have struggled using assistive technology, not because they can't use it, but because they are afraid of standing out mm -hmm. in the wrong way. Unfortunately, I think my personality helped to really totally not care about this and that sort of like helped me like kind of like excel in school. Um, but um, I was um, raised mainstream, so I did not go to like a specialized blind school or anything, but how the blind school teacher that I was getting some support from, how she was sort of telling me is that I gained like I'm sort of like, again, how she was telling me that I was kind of like a success example, but it's really difficult for her to encourage other kids to use whatever the device that she was introducing because, again, like the ki other kids like don't necessarily want to stand out. And at that time, like I was like 10 and she was like asking me like why I don't. I feel okay using this. I was like, I don't know. But, <laughs> um, but again, I think my question is, or comment, is like what, what's making a difference between something that can be like really cool because you have it versus like I just feel really embarrassed because I'm using this. I'm standing out in the wrong way. Um, part of my thinking was that especially, again, this argument comes from like either like a robot type of product or animal, like something that like seems like a companion rather than a tool. I don't know, again, I don't have any answer to myself, <laughs> um, but I don't know that if that's somehow helping more with the social emotional piece of how especially kids, you know, can use this technology. And I don't know if you, uh, again, I think you answer some of the questions by testing, but I don't know if you have other thoughts about, again, like when you make your product or design something, how that sort of can be a cool thing or can be more like a normalizing thing that everyone can use. Thanks for your comment. Before we address that, I just want to um, be mindful of time because we're going to try to have everybody uh, onto their next things by eight. So I'm going to ask you to not only respond to her comment, but make your closing uh, statement of anything else you you want to say as as well. And then we'll adjourn, and then people can have informal uh, additional Q and A if they want. Okay. So, okay. Uh -huh. so I, I wanted to respond to her question, and I think. For me, it relates to the question that the woman, I think Jill the name, um, who asked about inclusion and, and addressing stigma in, the, in a, a traditional educational environment. And I do think that it is, uh, it's about the culture, right? I think it's about what culture is, is being fostered in that particular environment. That'll ultimately dictate how our products or technology or this thing that could cause you to stand out uh, will be uh, perceived, right? And I think when you, in a, in a healthy, um, productive, learning-oriented environment that is inclusive um, and celebrates difference, um, there, it, there, there, you remove the <coughs> of antagonism, of of, uh, of negative, uh, you know, attention, right? So, so why wouldn't you then want to have something that can, can support you and help you, right? I think only, only in environments that are uh, harmful or, or, or uh, 
where there's where there's call with real cause for fear, right? Where there was a real threat of uh, of harm, mental harm, physical harm, or you know, or just uh, ostracism. Then does that uh, you know sort of uh, aversion arise? It's like I don't want to stand out. It's not. I know I have this experience. I, it's uncomfortable. I want to avoid it. You know, but it's about the it's about the environment. It's about the the culture that that is uh, shared within that environment. And I think um, we've been fortunate so far to to um, introduce our products in, in, in environments that are supportive and and celebrate diverse difference and things like that. But but um, I, I would say it's less it has less to do with the product itself and more the the environment. Um, I think that I agree that um, it's absolutely important to avoid stigma when introducing accommodations or technology or other assistive tools that help students with disabilities. And that can be accomplished in a number of ways. Um, for example, you, several people actually mentioned like, introducing it as a cool thing, as something interesting that other students can enjoy, or offering the same offering the same tool or technology to other students to sort of diffuse the stigma. A third option, however, is to present this thing as to destigmatize disability itself. Um, people often treat disability as though it were a bad word that should be avoided. I don't think it should be avoided. We as humans exist with different abilities and different disabilities. And I think that it is absolutely important not to shy away from recognizing that disability is something that affects people. And it can affect, and it's one of the few, one of the few disadvantaged or um, marginalized groups that anybody can join at any time. Anybody can get in an accident. You know, anybody can, you know, have a brain injury, get dementia, get Alzheimer's, get some sort of condition that affects the brain, affects cognition, affects intelligence. So it's important to not only practice universal design, but work on the structural factors that create stigma around disability in the first place, so that if, a, if, a stu if there's like a reason why a given student is the only one that uses that tool, that that student isn't stigmatized, that they aren't made to stand out just for being who they are and having a disability. You have to be honest. You have to recognize that it is not something that you can avoid. It's not something that can be sort of euphemized and pushed away. Disability is not a bad word, and neurodiversity is the default state of the human condition. We are all we are all different, and that isn't a bad thing. We need to incorporate that into our very lives and within our philosophies of how to create technology that assists people with disabilities. Disability, again, is not a bad word. Um, I think to conclude, I'll, I'll basically just recap my own experience, which is very, it's been very empowering for me. Um, when I first took Graz's class, they had it had all these readings as assignments, and you had to write um, answers to some questions that were posed after you read them. And usually, I think my assignments uh, I turned in like twenty or twenty-one pages for every question. The other instructor actually stopped me saying, can you please stop doing that? Because I actually have to 
wake up early just to grade your assignment. <laughs> and um, usually riddled with grammatical errors and all kinds of stuff, but I still remember when I got the feedback from Roz, she used to correct all the grammatical mistakes in my assignment, and it was just filled with very thoughtful responses as well as, oh my God, this is a such, such a cool insight. Um, and I never actually seen a professor who was that welcoming of insights from a student. Um, finally, when I got the diagnosis and I went to Roz, she said something like, of course you're on the spectrum. <laughs> How else do you think you got into MIT? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think she added, she kind of supplemented that by saying, um, not to worry, it's more of a requirement if you are a faculty member. <laughs> uh, and so ever since that happened, um, I kind of learned to just enjoy uh, myself without being too judgmental. It was a gradual process. And we have these events at the Media Lab called Members Week, where a lot of human beings just come to this place for two whole days. And after one of the meetings, we I was just telling Roz, it's just been too many human beings the last couple of days. I just want to be by myself. And she said, well, um, I'm, you know, I'm very similar. And so we kind of were high-fiving and nobody else could understand like why we were doing that, which was cool. And also, um, in cases where I've had to go and present, make a presentation or speak with people, um, she's also importantly pushed me out of my own comfort zone a little bit because sometimes I feel like in order to function, just as it's important to celebrate neurodiversity, you have to um, stretch yourself just a little bit um, just out of your comfort zone, and that's happened many times. And uh, uh, I, I just think that that kind of an environment can be very, very powerful, more than um, any single technology or design. Um, that environment was very impactful for me, and I would say that uh, I wish that every person who feels that he or she is neurotypically um, divergent, if any such thing exists, um, deserves to be in that kind of an environment. Thanks. Right. Thanks. Well, first I want to address the last question and then do a tiny summary. So last question, I, I didn't encode your name. Um, who, yes. Say it. Saki. Saki. Uh, well, thank you. And so you, you posed the question, I believe, um, what can help someone with a need adopt, adopt the technology that can help serve that need? and not want to reject it and what it could label the person as. And I don't have a perfect answer, but um, I believe in micro-successes. So micro-successes built into everything we do, very, very small and achievable goals that keep giving the feedback of you've achieved. And that can have a spreading capability, a spreading effect on confidence. And it strikes me that you particularly are someone who's very confident. And uh, since you were describing something that happened to you at age 10, you, you know, that came early for you, and that's, that's fabulous. And that's been uh, a coping strategy and a protective uh, layer around you. Some people begin with very little confidence and have the lack of confidence reinforced. Um, so how do we enforce an increase in confidence? And one answer is this micro-successes idea. Uh, it's not the only. Another thing to remember is that a child's brain is still learning. It's still forming. Mm -hmm. 
and that comes on both sides. So you can introduce that forming brain to something in a new way. You can color it. You can say, this is cool. And you can trick someone into believing something is cool, and it becomes cool. Likewise, who are those other kids in the class who are the bullies? They're just kids struggling to find their identity. And you find your identity by defining it against someone else sometimes, or finding this little part in which you're safe. You can carve that out by decrying what others have that makes them different. Because deep down inside, you know that you're different. And so but we can teach them. And I was there in a classroom where the mother of one of the, the kids that we have worked with gave a lesson to the class. She's a special needs teacher. And she asked everyone, so who here goes to bed with the lights still on? Who goes to bed with the lights off? Who um, brushes your teeth like this? Who brushes your teeth like that? Who likes sweet things? Who likes cold things? And everyone was just all over the map. It was that, that randomly distributed matrix that you were showing me earlier. And she's like, OK, so you're all different. And why don't you guys who are lights on go over there and lights off go over there? And you know, can you find ways that you can make fun of each other? Of course you can. <laughs> you all are different. And you know, it's so simple and trite, but it's not. This is a learning brain who's saying, oh, wow, I have something about me that's a little peculiar, particular, idiosyncratic, beautiful, something I can embrace that's me, that's identity. These are all flip sides of the same thing. And she rendered that beautiful lesson out there and then was like, okay, who here has, you know, has a has, you know, something that has a name and a label? Okay, there's that. Well, you know, how different is that kind of difference than the differences that you already realize that you, are, you have? And I thought that was a beautiful lesson and a simple way of addressing kind of your question from earlier, how to introduce it. Just one of thousands of possible ways, but to train the learning brain. And so I'd say, if anything, in wrapping up, let's hew closely to the brain. It's this amazing, possibly most complicated little wiggly piece of matter in the universe, although we're biased. And <laughs> <laughs> Try to understand it, us, and bring solutions that actually have some thing to some basis in the brain. And let's do science. So science is testing hypotheses. So that comes down to a hypothesis, riskiest assumption of the person I'm trying to serve will actually benefit from this, will adopt it, will like it. That's science. That's testing. That's being humble. And uh, you know, we have the privilege here of being under the, the tutelage of Professor uh, Picard, all of us, um, who has carefully, methodically done science for decades when there was no such thing as affective anything, affective computing, affective science, and has created this field, not because uh, necessarily just of good words or good ideas, but of good science. And I think we all need to remember that humbling lesson of testing our assumptions and building confidence in ourselves and what we're doing and in each other. All right. I wasn't expecting all these <laughs> nice comments. But um, I just would like to ask all of you to join me in thanking uh, our panelists, who I have had a fabulous time learning from. Thank you. <laughs>